0: Hey everyone, it's Cameron. I'm here joining you from my backyard. Uh, We'll see how the ambient noise holds up. Uh, A few minutes ago I had a pretty aggressive bird trying to get in on the action here, so we'll see if he decides to get in again. If he does, we'll just power through. Uh, But um, I I don't know about all of you. Uh, I know about myself and I know about some of you from conversations this week. I know that for many of us, this has been a a sincerely agonizing week. Um, We've had another high-profile police shooting of an evidently unarmed black man, likely paralyzing him, uh, which exploded the tense relationship between the community and law enforcement in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, We've had rioters hijacking and displacing the agendas of peaceful protesters, uh, even as people like Jacob Blake's mother, Julia Jackson, tearfully Pled for peace and productive means of protest through her anguish uh, on national TV. People's neighborhoods and livelihoods have been burning to the ground. Had a teenager uh, taking up illegal arms and ultimately killing two people in the process. Had social media doing what it does with all of this, um, passing around graphic, disturbing nauseating footage, sometimes selectively editing the footage uh, to fit an ideal narrative, sometimes turning the images of the injury or death of a person into a meme for a laugh um, to laugh at within a particular ideological echo chamber. Uh, We've had Hurricane Laura on top of all that, thrashing parts of Louisiana and Texas, destroying and displacing communities. We're still dealing with the grief and the questions around the explosion in Beirut, uh, which killed 180 people, left around 300,000 people homeless, they say. Uh, We're learning more about what's increasingly looking like the genocide of the Uyghur people in in China by the Chinese government. And lest any of us forget, uh, we've still got COVID-19 hanging around, keeping us isolated, disconnected, fearful, um, nervous amidst all of it. So I've, I've felt anxious uh, this week. At times, I felt sad. At times, I felt uh, on edge, powerless, certainly grieved. Um, a, a couple of moments, I felt near despair, uh, and I assume that's the case for many of you. And in, in, in times like these, if, you, if you're feeling this, it's, it's natural to begin to let your mind drift to, to questions like, where is God in the midst of this? Does he care at all about what's happening here? What does he think about the world and the people he's made? Those are fair questions to ask. Those are the kinds of questions that populate so many of the Psalms. Um, God can take those questions. Uh, he's not scandalized by them. But nonetheless, it's it's timely, and honestly, it's it's feels gracious to me that. Uh, the, the text from First John this week provides a much-needed reminder about God's love. The, the, this passage that we're going to look at, it could be thought of as, as the climax of the letter, where he's bringing all these themes that he's been weaving in and out of and circling back to time and time again. He brings them together, and he, he puts them all side by side and makes them hit with, with real force. Uh, if you want the Cliff Notes version of the letter of First John, the summary that captures what it's all about, um, look at these verses. Um, but the word that becomes the linchpin or the center point of this passage, or maybe of the whole book then, is love. Uh, love, which is is the one of the, the chief tests of the legitimacy of our faith, John's been telling us time and time again. Love, which gives us encouragement when we're in doubt. And, and the love of God specifically that is the foundation of, of everything else, um, certainly of the Christian life. And so we're, we're going to look at this here and, and, and see what it has to speak to us in, in, uh, in a day when it feels like the world is a little bit on fire. Um, well, verses 7 through 21 uh, kind of work as a unit here that kind of capture this, this theme. Of, of, of love one another because God is love. And that that love of him is proven in the sending of Jesus to be our sacrifice. And so this the, the heart of these verses, which which Ben just read for us, um, are right there. And we've been, again, we've been in them time and time again. And here we are once more. Um, we are to love one another, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ because we are to carry the resemblance and the reputation of the family of God. We're to look like our father, um, especially his love and how we move about in our relationships, especially our relationships within the Christian community. And it's not just in how we feel or in what we say, but in what we do, in our actions. And and to not do this is to show that something is deeply, deeply wrong, John is going to say. It's a sign that we don't actually know the Father that we claim to know. Um, and one of the, the phrases that just sticks out to me that seems like it's it's the central kind of linchpin thing is this, for love is from God, or he, he, he says this twice, God is love. Love originates in God, it is commanded from God, and it is defined by God. And there is no such thing apart from him as love despite what anyone else says and it, in verses 48 and 416 we we get the two verses in the whole bible that declare this simple phrase god is love so we should probably spend some time defining what this means and and how it differs from popular conceptions of, of how this phrase is understood first what it what it doesn't mean when 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 john says god is love. Um, he's, this is from a commentator, Colin Cruz. He says he's not making an ontological statement describing what God is in his essence. Like this isn't the substance that makes up God. Um, but at, but he is, as the following verses reveal, speaking about the loving nature of God revealed in saving action on behalf of humankind. And we're going to get into that uh, here in just a minute. Um, the phrase God is love uh, it doesn't give us permission to sort of just drop in our culturally conditioned definitions of love and, and define God that way. Um, God gets to set the terms. Sometimes you'll see you'll see people take this phrase, God is love, and say, therefore, it, he is how I want him to be, or he thinks how I want him to think in this way or that. And We don't get this. <laughs> this isn't an opportunity to do that. Um, it, it also doesn't mean that, that love is in some ways the superseding attribute of God that, when push comes to shove, cancels out the others. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about it that way. that, that God is so fundamentally love, so deep down that he couldn't possibly really be angry over my sin or, or whatever else. Um, God's love isn't his only attribute that we focus on at the expense of others. It's not what God is love means. So what does it mean? Well, I'm inclined to agree with the theologian John Frame when he says the, quote, essential attributes of God should not be considered parts of him, but rather are perspectives on his whole being, that is his essence. The attributes do differ in perspective and emphasis, but they ultimately coalesce. And, and the point is, so it, it's not then a contradiction for the same John to write elsewhere, like in 1 John, that God is light he can be both light and love at the same time. Or, or for him to say, as he does in the gospel, that God is spirit. Uh, or for that matter, it's not contradictory for the biblical authors to write about his anger or his justice or his holiness or his wisdom or his power. And we could go on and on and on. Each of these attributes faithfully describes God uh, from each of their perspectives. They don't count, cancel each other out. But when we say God is love, this includes that that love finds its origin and its definition and its first example within him. I mean, the, the relationship between the three persons of the Trinity is one of eternal love for one another within the Godhead. It includes his love for all of his creation, a love that's declared over and over again in scripture. And it includes his special saving love for his children as well. And We could say a ton more about it as well. But I, I want to point you back to this definition that we found really helpful in, I think, the second sermon, maybe third of the series, which was Jack Cottrell's definition. He says, God's love is his self-giving affection for his image-bearing creatures and his unselfish concern for their well-being that leads him to act on their behalf and for their happiness and for their welfare. We we also said that love disadvantages oneself, sacrificially gives of oneself for the true good of the other. It can and does involve your feelings, but it goes far beyond simple feelings into commitment and action, even when the feelings have faded away. So because God is love, his love informs all that he is and does. Okay. That's a little abstract. We're going to jump out of that zone for a second. Um, It's no surprise in light of all this, though, that John puts forward the chief example of God's love for us in the sending of Jesus on humanity's behalf. And it's not just that he, he's, it's, he doesn't just mention that. God sends Jesus for us, but it's for multiple purposes that he lays out in this passage. And I want to look at six that I I noticed in the passage. First is that he sent Jesus into the world to die on our behalf. First, that we might live through him in verse nine. In a world of death, destruction and decay, both spiritual and physical, that we cannot avoid Every time we turn on the news, every time we turn on social media, every time we get a mournful phone call from a friend who's struggling with the weight of these things. We can't avoid that we're in a world of death. And this death is pushing down on us, all around us. His great act of love has secured life. It has brought life to us, life for us, life abundantly, actual, real life. Life, in the here and now life of a quality that supersedes even the death that we feel and experience and see and life that uh, is promised to us that will transcend the death that we're all going to experience at one point so we're all going to die and we're promised that like Jesus we will overcome even that real physical tangible death life has swallowed it up because of his great love, in sending Jesus for us, death does not have to get the last word, but life can and does in Jesus. He also says one of the one of the purposes for which he sent his son was to be the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins, which we see in verse 10. And we discussed this uh, several sermons ago as well. But this Greek word helasmon. Is propitiation or atoning sacrifice or appeasement of God's anger or wrath? The sacrifice is quote for our sins, which had to be dealt with. And this is this is the apex of loving grace that God looked at us in our at our lowest point, in full view of our sin, in full view of the ways that we have contributed to uh, all of the evil and sin and death and destruction that plagues the world we're in. He looked at us in that moment and he said, I will give everything for you. I will save you at ultimate cost to myself. God said, I will save you at cost of the death of my one and only begotten son. That's number two. A third reason he gives is is to motivate our love for our brothers. We see that in verse 11. It's very similar to what John's already said in 1 John 3:16, when he said, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And just as a side note, it's interesting to note that in, in Christian th- theology, there's kind of camps that will sort of lean toward one side or the other of this divide. Let's just talk specifically about sort of... Uh, this propitiation, atoning sacrifice, substitutionary death, some who would say that is all and that is the main thing, the exclusive thing sometimes that the cross accomplished. And then others that would, would look at uh, the example that Jesus made, the, the great love that he showed us, that's the meaning of the cross. It's an inspiration. It's a moral influence that, that gets worked out on us, that shows us how to properly live and love and respond to others. But it's interesting to note that right here, John puts them side by side. Um, There is a propitiation, an appeasement, a a sacrificial atoning work that the cross does. And there is also a moral example that Jesus puts forward that's to inspire us to love others. These things are not meant to be pushed uh, apart from one another, but they comfortably sit right next to each other as... Parts of the multifaceted nature of what Jesus did on the cross. Um, commentator Thomas B. Slater said this this whole thing is an example of theological genetics. He said, just again, it's it's the human offspring possessing characteristics of one or both parents. Just as that happens, so true, so too true Christians exhibit the essential characteristic of God: love. If we are God's offspring, we are to carry his traits, <laughs> his love. This is that family resemblance idea. Again, the cross motivates our love for other believers in Christ. Number four, verse 14 points out that he sent his son to be the savior of the world. That's the only time this word savior comes up in 1 John. It comes up elsewhere in the scriptures, of course, but here... It's the only time in 1 John that he came to be the savior of the world. God loves the world. We've talked about the world previously as the system of values and beliefs and uh, systems set up against the values of God, against the kingdom. Um, God is opposed to that because it's bad news for everyone who encounters it. But... In a very real sense, God loves the world and that he loves every person in it. He does not sit back dispassionately, disinterestedly, uh, with his arms folded, looking on the mess and the pain down here in in this world, uh, sort of scoffing at it. But no, his heart breaks for it. And he desires to come and save it and his people. Does it feel like the world needs saving right now? Uh, sometimes from when things are going well and in the comfort of our air conditioned, you know, 21st century homes um, in a city as often as beautiful and as culturally vibrant as Portland can be, um, when we have our, our needs met in a way that uh, most of human history couldn't even imagine, even the great rulers and kings couldn't have imagined the comfort with which we live. It doesn't seem to feel like the world needs a savior. That it needs saving. But whenever the reality of the darkness that exists pierces through with another shooting or mass rioting or whatever else. We see it and we feel it. And we know that things must change. Not just change but be saved. We need a savior. And that's why God sent his son at ultimate cost to himself to save you and to save me, to save anyone who would say yes to that great yes that he's already declared over us. Number five, he he demonstrated his love by sending his son that we might know and believe the love that God has for us. Is it difficult for you? To believe that God ultimately loves you, I know that's the that's the one of the most Christian slogans. It's one of the most Christianese phrases we can utter. Ah God loves people. God loves you, God loves me, God loves everybody, whatever. but can you know and feel and believe in the words of first John here the love that he has for you? Do you experience it? Is this an experiential? existential reality for you that God loves you. One of the purposes of him sending his son is to make it known and felt and believed in your heart of hearts that he loves you. We receive messages counter to this all the time. We get these little whispers in our ears that that God doesn't actually care. God doesn't actually love you. If he loved you, how could he allow this to happen to you? How could he allow this to happen to this people group? How could he allow this to happen to this individual? How could he allow these systems to be structured this way? How could he allow these lies to be told and these manipulations to happen? But the proof is in him sending his son for us. Don't let the cross become stale to you. Don't let it become stale. He wants it to be a constant reminder that fundamentally he is for you. He's for you. And not just an, as an intellectual piece of data, but in your heart of hearts, that it would resonate. Number six, last one we see in this passage at least, is that, that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, which goes along with this idea of his perfect love casting out Fear. We know that a judgment day is coming, that if God is to truly be good, he must come to put an end to sin, to draw a line in the sand, to say here and no further will it be allowed to go, but it will be stopped. That must happen if he's to be good. If if there is to be real good news for this world, the evil has to stop. And the thought of that can quickly stir up fear in us because we know we have contributed we are guilty blood is on our hands blood is on your hands blood is on my hands both actively because of sins of action and because of inaction um, and if we really understand that we can have fear of that judgment day but secure in God's love we do not have to fear this punishment we don't have to fear this day we can stand confidently at the thought of God bringing his righteous judgment to bear on the world in the last day not because we're morally good or pure enough we're not we're not I hope you understand that Christianity isn't about becoming morally pure and good enough to withstand judgment but it's about the idea that our sin has already been judged in Christ on the cross. The full price has been paid and his righteousness and his victory over death have been applied and given to us. His love casts out fear, fear of judgment, fear of death, fear of punishment and praise God for that reality. Okay, let's pause there for a second. Let me sum all of this up by asking you to imagine something with me. And I want you to close your eyes. Okay, this this might be a little hokey, but close your eyes. Uh, Not if you're listening to this while driving your car, of course. (laughs) But if, if you're not driving a car, close your eyes. I want you to imagine... The person toward which you have experienced the most intense, beautiful, selfless feelings of love in your life. Who's that person? It might be your son or your daughter. It might be a best friend who has just been with you through thick and through thin. It might be a parent. It might might be a spouse. If you're not married, it might be a a romantic partner you currently have or have had at some point. But whoever it is, picture them. Picture that person, picture their face. What feelings are stirred up in you? When you think about the person you most love, what is the limit of what you would do for them? What kinds of things do you want for them in this life? Your love for them, however powerful it is, we're told is but a shadow, a dim reflection, a hint of a foretaste of the love that God has for you. His love for you is perfect and complete it is limitless he is for you and in the same way he is for all the people he's made at the deepest level imaginable and when the world feels like it is on fire he wants you to know that is what he is for you that is what he has for you and that is what he has for this world Friends, that is good news. It is desperately needed news right now. And he closes out this section with a familiar refrain we've heard time and time again in this book, which is verse 19. So we love because he first loved us. Maybe this morning we feel a little bit more of that weight with which he loves us verse 20 if anyone says I love God and hates his brother he's a liar for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen and this commandment we have from him whoever loves God must also love his brother and when the world feels like it's on fire We too carry this responsibility because of his great love to one love to love one another and to provide a picture to those who desperately need it of the God who is there and the God who is love. And then he closes out this section. I I think it continues the same section in verses one through five of chapter five, which is just the succinct summary of the three themes he's brought up in this book that to test your faith. Which is in verse 1a, he says, believe that Jesus is the Christ. And the point is, you will evidence that you've been born of God. It's a test of belief. And then he says, love the brothers who've been born of him in verse 1b. And you'll evidence that you do sincerely love the Father. It's a test of your love. And then he says, obey his commandments twice. And you'll evidence that you love God. A test of obedience in verses 2 through 3. succinct of a summary of this book as he could give you and this passage powerfully ties together the ideas of belief in Jesus love for God and love for Christians held with sincerity in the heart coming out through the hands in action these are the proof that you're walking in his light and walking in his love and underneath all of it is that great love of God that first loved us. Before any of this can come out in our lives, we have to know and believe and receive that love that he has for us. And then he'll empower us. And then he'll motivate us. And then he'll change us. And then he'll inspire us. Then he'll give us confidence to do this. And then the last two verses... He says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We say it again. When it feels like the world is on fire, we know that by trusting in Jesus, we have victory over the world there's so much more that could be said but our time is short we want time for you to discuss this in community and so I, I don't always do this obviously but i felt compelled to do it this morning i'm gonna leave you with three points of application from this text the first is to please 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 go and find a time or some times to meditate on this passage this week Chapter 4, 7 through 5, 5. Do you meditate? Do you, do you find a time to, to sit down and to read and reread and to, to, to let it sit in your mind in silence as you just stop and weigh in on what God has revealed about his love and our response to that love and the victory that he's secured for us? I want you to revel this week in God's love for you and for the victory he's secured for you. Number two, I want want you to reach out to one brother or sister in Christ at Door of Hope Northeast this week that you know, and to just verbalize your love for them. And we know it's not all about just what was said, of course, but it's not less than that. I want you to reach out, give someone a call, meet up for coffee or something, and tell them about your love for them and why you love them share it with them don't hold it inside but actually take a proactive step to to reach out and bless them that they might know your love for them and third i want you to reach out to one person outside of the faith that's in your world and share your love for them in the same way it doesn't have to be a i'm not talking about a a gospel presentation moment i'm talking about an expression of your love for them because friends They need it. You need it. I need it. We need it. And this love, speaking love, isn't the end of our story. Of course, we're to put our love into loving action. But friends, this can be the start (laughs) of something. Just the small act of profession. How you feel. That they might come to see that your love is sincere. And ultimately, that we might all come to trust that the love of God is reflected in that love. It's a dark day. It's a dark week. It's a dark world. It it always is. Um, But friends, may we carry the resemblance of the God who loves, the God who has overcome with us this week. May we not lose hope. May we not despair. May we trust.